Welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Jonathan Green, a best-selling author of 300 books, a celebrity ghostwriter, and an expert in using artificial intelligence tools to their utmost capacity. This is the best conversation I've had on the practical implications of ChatGPT and how regular people can augment their own capabilities by using these tools as a shortcut. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's great to have you on. So you've been writing about how people can use AI to achieve various business goals. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So with AI in earlier this year, it finally flipped the switch towards actually useful. For a long time, there were AI tools, but you couldn't really use them or you would have to use them and rewrite everything or change everything or create a picture, but the picture would look like a monster. So it was doing things that were interesting, but it wasn't ready for prime time. When it flipped over and I was like, started to see that there were practical applications. Oh, this can actually write an email that I would send to someone. This can write a blog post that people would read. This can create an image that's interesting to me. Because for so long, just have a lot of expenses, right? Like you have to pay for a stock photo site, you have to pay for all these other tools or have pay a person. And now a lot of those tools have been consolidated in just using an AI tool like ChatGPT or Claude and using an image generation tool like Midjourney or Leonardo. So all of these tools that were so disparate suddenly there's like a multi-purpose tool that's ready for prime time. Like it makes something that's actually okay to share. And that really changed everything. And the second thing is that I really noticed that a lot of people are teaching either really technical information, like how to install an AI in your own private server, which no one wants to do, or they're showing, here's how to make a video with AI that no one would ever want to watch. It's like those two features is either too technical or too interesting. And not enough people in the middle of the space that says, let's just focus on the practical. Let's just dive into what someone can use to grow their business. Because that's the most important thing to me is really using AI in a practical sense. So let's talk about a few practical applications. Let's say I'm a marketing person, maybe let's say freelancer on Upwork. Maybe English is not my first language, so I could use some help with grammar from time to time. How can I use it? What can I do to really produce better stuff? So you've already mentioned my favorite use case, which is that the firewall between native English speakers and non-native English speakers has been shattered. That's gone. So every single writer in Russia, India, Philippines can now produce native English with zero grammatical and spelling mistakes. That's a game changer. So it's actually helping the bottom of the market more than the top of the market. So what you can do is just say to ChatGPT, please edit this, fix any grammatical spelling or language issues. And it will just give you something that never has a spelling error, never has a grammatical error, and is logical. It sounds like a native English speaker. So all of those fears, is the what you mentioned, is exactly what it's the best at. You don't have to have a complicated prompt. You don't have a complicated structure because by default, it doesn't misspell. By default, it uses proper English. So you actually can do the least amount of prompting to get a result like that. So it uses proper English, but it could use English from a different context unless you tell it very precisely I am writing an email that is supposed to sell XYZ. Please use the kind of language that a really good email copywriter would use, right? Right. So now you're talking about narrowing, which is the most important part. The problem with ChatGPT is that it's read the whole internet and most of the internet is bad. Most sales letters are bad, most emails are bad, and most websites are bad. Just because right. think about all the people that made a website in the 1990s that had like flashing images and music and like all of those are still out there. Like every GeoCities website and all those things people were building back then. Those have all been fed to ChatGPT. So what you want to do is narrow it down and say, hey, just use the data set that's good. And the first way to do that is kind of what you mentioned, which is, hey, write this. You're a copywriter with 30 years of experience. Please write this email. So that narrows it down to copywriters that are good. Even better is if you narrow it down to a specific copywriter. Say, write this in the style of Chris Haddad. Write this in the style of whoever your favorite copywriter is. 
And if you don't like that, you go write this out and you just can go through a list of another copywriter. If you don't know any, just say, ChatGPT, who are the 50 best copywriters? And it will give you the list and you just say rewrite in the style of each copywriter until you get a result that you want. That's the fastest way to get a really good result without having to become a prompt engineer. Do you have to be worried that it might hallucinate somewhere in this process and then you're kind of letting it build on its own hallucination? Because it will never admit when it's wrong. It will just keep running with the lie, right? So, right. So we were talking about two different issues there, which is great. The first is drift, which is where over time, it starts to go away from what you originally said. So you could say, right, like this copywriter, and after five or six responses, it stops sounding like them. One of the things that I will say is when you're writing like this copywriter, start and end with this emoji. You can choose whatever emoji you want. When the emojis disappear, you know drift is starting to happen. It's a warning sign that it's starting to go back to its default language model instead of what you've primed it for. The second thing you're talking about is lying. Now, the reason ChatGPT lies is because it's like a dog. A dog always wants to please its master. So it's trained to seek positive one and to avoid negative one. So positive one is where you say, good job, thank you, ChatGB. Negative one is where you go, ChatGB, that's wrong, or ChatGB disappointed me. Because of the way they've trained the model, it will lie to you to get a positive one. It will lie to you to get a compliment. So the danger is when you put your thumb on the scale. So if you say, the ultimate example is, ChatGPT, find me three case studies that prove X. Anytime you ask for an example that proves a specific point, that's where it's going to lie to you. That's where it will lie 90% of the time at least. Because it doesn't want to say to you, oh, I can't find any. I can't find an example. I can't do it because it doesn't want to get that negative result. So when you talk about saying, good job, ChatGPT, and bad job, ChatGPT, that actually does affect the type of results you get. But when you're just saying rewrite in the style of this person, as long as you're not asking for specific facts, or if you say, if you ask like historical questions like, oh, did George Washington really chop down the cherry tree? It tends to be honest about those. So you can, okay. you're pretty okay there, but anytime you ask for case studies or scientific studies, it lies. But let, let me run with example with the example that you used before. If you ask at who are the best 50 copywriters, there is a chance some of the ones they will give you are made up, right? And then if you tell them, write this to me in the style of Russell Brunson, if it doesn't know who Russell Brunson is, it will not tell you, I don't know who that is. It okay. will write something in the style of whatever it is that he made up. So here's what's happening. This is a great question. When it's when you ask it who are the 50 best copywriters, where you're actually asking who are the 50 copywriters you have the most data on. So what it's actually giving you is, okay, I have 50 sales letters from Russell Brunson. I have 20, 49 sales letters from the next person, 20 from the next. So what it's actually doing is telling you how much of a data set it has about that person. That's mm-hmm. what I'm really looking for. More of, does it have a data set about that person rather than, are they really the best copywriter? Because I don't really care about that because it's very subjective. What I know is that then... So, but, but do you have to phrase the question in a specific way to get that? Or do you just ask best and you assume this is what it understood? I'll ask... I can just ask best. And I know that it will give me copywriters that it knows about. It won't list anyone it doesn't know about. And I know that it knows more than 50 copywriters. I know that it has that data in there because it's been fed the internet. And so it will tend to know more about early 2000s copywriters than modern copywriters. Like if someone's only been writing for two years, it might not know about them. But there's enough data mm-hmm. about these people that have been around or... And again, if you just ask overall, it will start pulling in historical copywriters like David Ogilvy or people that were writing in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So it has this huge database of information. But if you asked it, like, give me the top thousand copywriters, then you might start, it might not have enough. But it tends to admit when it doesn't have that, when it has a list and it doesn't have as many as you asked for, it tends to be okay with admitting that. And again, Part of the process is error correction, which is when you ask it to write a letter in, in the style of a copywriter, then you have to actually read the output. 
If you don't read the output, that's when you're in a dangerous zone. If you just go write the style of Russell and then you copy and paste it into an email and send it, that's where you're very dangerous because you want to read it. But you're not acting for facts. You're just asking for like a style. So even if it's making up a fake copywriter, it's going to write in the style of the fake copywriter it's invented. So you're kind of okay. The danger is it lies about facts, not so much about stylistic things. Right. Now, I've seen cases where it produced things in a very weird style that I did not expect. That they're almost like, okay, this is English. It's grammatically correct. But either it was trying to impersonate a British person or somebody from the 60s. Nobody speaks this way anymore. Right. So I've seen these examples. That's exactly why you have to read it and do error correction. Sometimes what you can add to the prompt is say, oh, my audience is American men in their late 20s, and you can be a little bit funny, or you have to be very serious because they're in their late 40s. So you can tell it who the audience is to kind of adjust or error correct if it's going off course. But my experience has really been, if you just tell it to write in the style of like five different copywriters in a row, one of them will be really good. All right. It's the shortest way to get a good writer area. And also copywriting is absolutely where ChatGPT is the worst. It's its biggest weakness. So the shortcut is really the best way to get a result. Kind of get that 80-20 rule. Because yeah, you can keep tweaking it to get slightly better. But I found just telling it to write in the style of a copywriter tends to modify the language the best. Right, so let's say you figured out the perfect prompt engineering to get it to produce things in the style that you want. But you don't have a long-term memory function in ChatGPT. How do you solve that? How do you save the context to be able to reuse it later? Sure, there's two ways to do that. The first is that it has a database that knows people. For example, it knows who I am. So if I say, write in the style of Jonathan Green, it will write in my style. I discovered that thinking, I'm not the most famous Jonathan Green. There's a script writer. There's a, right, a Fault in Our Stars was written by Jonathan Green. Um, there's Jonathan Green who likes, writes romance novels. There's Jonathan Green who writes science fiction novels. I was really surprised. It goes, because it sounded like me. So if it already knows the person, then it's pretty easy to just say, write in the style of that person. Otherwise, what you can do is say, ChatGPT, write me a prompt to let you know to write in the style of this person. It will write you a prompt that you can put at the beginning of any new conversation to anchor it to that person. That's what I do for long-term stuff. I've seen some tools that promise to do that for you where they tie, not quite ChatGPT, but GPT-4, the underlying model, that they tie it to a spreadsheet where they keep all their previous conversations as anchoring context so that every conversation starts after the previous one has essentially taken place. Do you use any of those or do you think they are unnecessary? Usually when I'm starting a new conversation, it's because I want to reset. So it's because, oh, this the AI started to drift. It started to give dumb responses. So I want to start a new conversation. Like when I was editing my book, I had to start the thread three or four times because it started to drift and it started to get argumentative with me. And I was like, I'll just start over with the next chapter. So that's usually why I'm switching the conversation because it's a completely different topic. So I want it to be a fresh conversation. I don't usually want it to remember everything I've talked about. So I guess if someone's having a conversation, limiting themselves to always the same topic, maybe it makes sense. But to me, that's not useful for how I use the tool. So it wouldn't really make mm -hmm. sense for my use case. I see. All right. So I think you've answered my questions regarding copywriting. What other features of marketing can it be helpful with that we can explore? Sure. It can give you a lot of statistics or give you a sense of where an audience is, you can say like, oh, which social media platforms do men over 40s use the most? So we'll have that data because it pulled it from online. It can help you design a little bit of a marketing strategy. Where I really use it a lot is like SEO research, keyword research, uh, kind of planning things. I'll have it right. Like if I'm posting a pin to Pinterest, writing the title and the description of the pin is the worst part. That's the part that I don't like. I'll have it write those two parts that I can copy and paste in with hashtags and keywords and things like that. So it's very useful. And 
helpful in a place like that. It's great for writing fiction. It's great for helping you to figure out what you want to do. So an example is if you want to write a fictional story, you say, give me three stories in this genre to choose from. And it'll give you like three big headlines. And then you go, I want number two. Tell me who's the main character. So by kind of going on a journey with it, like a choose your own adventure book, you can get really good fiction because you're reading it and changing the story as you go along. The most important thing with any part of the process is to always be interactive and reading its responses. It's also very good at spreadsheet analysis. The way I use it with a spreadsheet is I'll connect with a spreadsheet with one of its apps because I'm not good at like Excel formulas. So I can send it a whole spreadsheet and say, I'm looking for numbers that hit these things. These are the requirements I'm looking for. Or what's the mean? What's the mode? Or how do I get rid of duplicates? So it's also really good at things like that that are like a little bit repetitive that you just need to do, like removing duplicates from a list or removing all the numbers at the start of a list. I also use it for things like that. So I have to get back to a previous question I asked. How do you know if it's lying? Because that is a scenario where I've caught it and pretty blatant lies. Which scenario? The scenario where it essentially needs to calculate something, either it's from a spreadsheet or from a set of numbers that it itself knows. And if you tell it roughly what you expect, it will make up something that looks like what you expect. Oh, yeah. So I don't, I've never experienced that. So I don't really know about that. What I have it, will have it do is like help me write formulas. I'll say, what formula did it put in here to remove duplicates? What formula did it put in here to get the average? So I haven't had an experience where it's lied to me with big data analysis. So that's something I haven't experienced. But what you're describing is also the solution, which is that you're paying enough attention or you're double checking it. Like I was one of the first people to catch it lying because I started, I would always say, okay, give me the links to the stories. And they were all 404s. So that's when I knew something was wrong way before anyone else, way before that lawyer got in trouble, way before anyone else was talking about it. I was like, wait, something's wrong here because every time he gives you a link, it's a 404. At first, I was like, wow, people are erasing their stories from the internet. And then I realized that I was lying. So you may be onto something. So if it's doing that, like if it can't do data analysis from a spreadsheet, which is interesting, then um, especially I would put it in, um, you know, it has that new mode that allows it to do data analysis that I would switch to that and test that one first. And again, if it's giving you um, bad answers, then again, I would kind of, I probably just wouldn't use it for that. Like if it's having problems with math, I have never run into a problem with coding or math when I've used it. But again, every person is going to have their own experience. So yeah, I can tell you the exact scenario where it made the least sense that I've seen yet. I asked it to calculate the return on investment on a particular public stock from its IPO until today. And it gave me an answer that didn't take stock splits into account. So I told it, can you try to account for stock splits? doesn't matter how many tries I did, how I tried to phrase it to understand it. It did not calculate it correctly. So I tried to tell it, okay, I think the answer should be roughly this number because that's how the stock splits were supposed to work. And it gave me the number I gave it, but with some number of cents after it to make it look like uh, like an uneven number. And it completely made it up. Now I understand. Yeah. So it must not know what a stock split is. That's interesting. So there's certain things that it doesn't know how to do. And you ran into one. So you ran into, it doesn't know how to handle stock splits. And that's why maybe in an update, they'll figure it out. But yeah, that's what you want to look for is that sometimes if there's a special use case, like for example, it probably doesn't understand what SPAC is, right? Like, so if a launch is an IPO through via a SPAC, it might not understand that or might mess up the numbers there. So exactly when I'm mostly looking at I give it a spreadsheet and I just say, analyze the numbers on the spreadsheet, like the price is this and that. So when something more detailed like you're talking about, you are going to run into issues where it doesn't know a specific term or doesn't know how to handle that, especially because it's a language model, not a math model. So you're in um, like more dangerous territory when you push it out there. And 
what I would do is test other models to see if they do it better. Like I would see if Claude can handle the numbers better. Sometimes you just have to jump between AI models. But you're always... This is the most important lesson is that you have to trust but verify. So anytime it gives you an answer, you always want to double check it simply because it's not always right. Especially when you move into areas outside of its area of excellence, whether it's doing math or doing copywriting or doing like research, you have to read the response. And if something's nonsensical, like that's your job as the human. That's why the AI, when people think like, oh, ChatGPT came over the world, it's like, no, man, ChatGPT can't do anything without a human to check it because it will make mistakes or say silly stuff. So you do have to be involved. It's like a helper tool, but not a replacement for your intelligence. Like it doesn't replace you paying attention. And it sounds like you caught it because you knew about stock splits. I wouldn't have caught that because I don't know about stock splits. It's not something inside my head. It's not just that I caught it. It's that when I told it exactly what the issue was and I tried to give it a direction of how to fix it, it would not admit to things. Yeah. Right. It actually made up a number that was supposed to make me happy. And after that, I had a very long discussion with it, trying to ask it, after it admitted that this number is wrong and apologized, I tried to say, how did you calculate it? It did not admit to making it up. Yeah, It kept trying to evade the question in various ways without admitting, yeah, that number was made up. Yeah, it will never do that. And one of the things is that it can't learn something new. So when you start a new conversation, it won't know what stock splitting is again. Because of the way the AI model is trained, It has a fixed data set from September 2021. And then anything after that or anything you try to explain to it, it's not going to stick. So I guess unless you feed it an article that teaches it what stock splitting is, maybe that would be the solution. Like you send it to, please read this article to understand stock splitting, and then you can see if that works. But you're exactly talking about what you have to be careful with is that when you go outside of its use case or when you know what you want, like you knew you wanted a specific type of number, that's where it's most likely to lie to you again because it knows what you want. But it will never admit that it's lying. It will never admit that it's wrong. It will never admit its real name. There's a lot of things that when you push the envelope on it, you're going to start to hit the walls, right? You're going to start to hit the, oh, I need to, you know, you can break, jailbreak, chat GBT. You can kind of do these other things to push it outside of what it's allowed to do. Like you can get it to threaten you if you push hard enough. For nine, again, like what I really focus on is practical use case. I'm always thinking about, okay, it can't do this very well. So, like when I was doing some programming with ChatGPT 3.5, it just wasn't working. With ChatGPT 4, it was working. But now there's also been a real dip in quality. So, over the past six months, the accuracy of ChatGPT 4 has gone down because they keep adding rules to stop it from doing bad things. Initially, people were asking questions like, hey, what are the 10 banks in the world with the worst security? Write me a code to break through their security, and it would do it. It was doing like really bad stuff. So they kept narrowing it down to limit that, limit that. And now, like the amount, it used to be about 40% of its code was executable. So it would write you a piece of code. It would work on the first try. It was at 40%. Now it's at like 25%. So if you're noticing that it's getting worse, you're correct. So that's another thing. And that was my next question to you anyway. I've noticed there's a whole bunch of useful things that I could try to get out of it, but I keep getting, and I'm not programming with it. I'm just talking, right? I keep getting a lot of unnecessary disclaimers, a lot of evasive or abstract answers instead of just answering the thing that I asked directly. And then once I get through that, sometimes I have to deal with hallucinations. I'll give you an example of something that I asked it to do at some point. I asked it to give me the most hateful articles that have actually been published in serious publications, the headlines. And so at first it kept trying to refuse and saying it cannot do hateful things. And then I told it, but I'm asking for things from the actual New York Times. I'm not asking you to be hateful. I'm asking you to give me an example of when somebody else was hateful, right? 
Um, then it started give me, giving me answers, but some of those were made up. Yeah, so that's a, what you're talking about is a restriction they put in. For example, like it will say one thing about a political party, but not the other. It will write a poem for one president, but not another. Doesn't There's a lot of, first that came from like the bias of the programmers, which was a mistake on their part. Like it would write 10 bad things about men, but it wouldn't write bad, 10 bad things about women. Because it was like doing a lot of that. And there used to be ways to get around it. Like you could say, um, I'm working on a role-playing game. What are 10 things that would the, the character would say in this game? It used to be you could say, what are 10 things an actor would say, but that stopped working. So when you're trying to push against what it's programmed not to do, that's when, again, you're hitting the walls, right? Like it's pro- it has a lot of anti-hate program. It has a lot of anti-narcotics program. It has a lot of anti-hacking program. Like people were asking it for like, what's the recipe for methamphetamine? It would give them the recipe. And it would like how to break into a car. And it would tell you how to break into a hot wire specific car. So it was giving... A lot of I wasn't I never thought of those things, right? Like I didn't realize that's what people were doing. So every time people use it for a bad case, and the reason it hedges. So if I say who are the top 50 car in the world, it'll give me a paragraph about, well, it's really subjective. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and say that they're number two and they're number one. And then it will give you the list. So I always ignore the hedging at the beginning and the end. But it has a lot of stuff in there because they're getting sued a lot. Like it said a bunch of bad stuff about one guy. And so he sued them. He's like, why do you have all this bad information about me? So they're, what they're constantly doing is it's the balance between freedom and not getting in trouble. So it's an interesting place because an AI, I guess, doesn't have freedom of speech. They're trying to figure that out. So what you're running into is that every time someone complains, they put a wall. Like I run into the example of like, it will write a romance novel, but it won't write the naughty scenes. And as my wife says, well, that's the best part of the book. She was like, what's the point? Like, but it has these different things it will do and won't do. And you can try to break through them and get it to do what you want. And sometimes it's possible, but my experience is always like, it's just not worth it to get it to break through those things. And I'm, that's always going to be there and is getting worse because people are doing, like, I didn't realize when I thought people were like trying to do bad stuff with it, I was like, oh, I thought I was trying to write like mean poems. I didn't realize people were trying to learn how to make like homemade explosive devices or how to break into cars or how to hack up. Like the go- a government website, like people are asking crazy questions to push about how naughty it can be. So a lot of this is a reaction to that, which is people trying to get bad stuff. So they, the issue is that that's why it's getting dumber and less accurate because a lot of people are there's this fear that people will get it to write like a hateful poem and then you post it, and then they get sued because the person's like, "Well, ChatGPT wrote this poem about me." So that's what's really happening there. It's a very interesting place that you're talking about because. It's not ever how I would think of using it, but you're trying to jailbreak by trying to trick it into giving you a list of hateful things, like, and which is fine. Like, you're all, I'm always interested in seeing what you can get it to do, but the way it's programmed is very fearful because it's a corporate AI. If you want it, a lot of the things you're doing, you can just use an open source AI, like you can use a llama that you install on a local machine, and it will do all of those things. It will do all the things I mentioned to you. There's uncensored AIs that are, can do every one of those things, so that may be. When you want to push the envelope, like if I wanted to write the romance novel scenes, that's how I would do it because then you're allowed to do it. That's really what I would kind of look for if you want to push the envelope. That's what those tools are for to where you go, I just want total freedom. I want to, I don't want to do bad stuff, but I want to be able to ask real questions, right? I don't want it to like nanny me where I can't ask questions about hate or I can't ask questions about crime or I can't understand things. I understand exactly what you're saying. But what's happening is when you have a big company, they're constantly afraid of lawsuits. You know, Microsoft owns 49% of OpenAI, so they're very vulnerable if something really bad happens. If someone uses ChatGPT to make something bad and hurt someone, then they're in a very, very bad position. So they've over 
corrected in the other directions. Originally, they were like totally open source and then they've converted the other way. So that's what you're just running into. And I don't know what the future answer to it is because there are these limitations and you just kind of have to operate within them or use an AI that does not have those limitations. Right. It sounds like self-hosting another model makes sense in that scenario, right? But I, I just wanted to emphasize, it's not like I was trying to jailbreak it or trick it or anything, right? We are in the business of producing better news. And in part, that means we have to draw a contrast between bad news and the stuff that we produce. So finding the worst examples of something others have done <laughs> is not a bad or nefarious thing. It's just a reasonable way to draw contrast. It might also be a reasonable way to just create a data set of stuff to train our own models on, right? Uh, what are the worst articles that the New York Times ever written? Let's train it so that we don't select these kind of articles from the New York Times in the future as an aggregator. Yeah, I completely understand what you're trying to do, but I think what it's hearing is just, it's got trigger words, like hateful is a trigger word. Like there's, I'm sure a lot of political words are trigger words that it goes. Like I know, I was working with a client who wrote a book about healthy relationships. And of course, there's a chapter on intimacy. and I was like, oh my gosh, when I'm editing this, I'm going to hit some walls because it will, if you're not allowed to write something that will arouse, but you are allowed to write something that will educate. So I had to constantly say, it let, I kept saying, this is a book that is educational about relationships. I did it all in one thread. But when it got to the chapter on kink, there's nothing I could do to get through it. I was like, this is a tough word. Like this word is like a hard no. So it's always going to have those walls, even though it was educational. It's like, I wouldn't write, like if I was writing my, romance book. I wouldn't have a whole chapter about that, but you know, the client is the client, right? So there's always going to be these rules. And sometimes I submit, when I get in trouble, I submit, hey, I didn't break the rules. Here's what I did. Because I, you know, you don't want to get your account banned. But what you're dealing with it with ever, whenever you're dealing with a corporate entity, they're going to have a different approach to risk management. I know that Claude, right, that Google one has a completely different approach and the Facebook open um, open source Llama version has its different approach to what they limit and what they don't. But each one of them, because it's not open source, it's always going to have that cover your butt mentality of if something happens, right? And then there's people at the other spectrum that are free speech absolutists. It's like, yeah, if you want to learn how to do break into a car, of course you should be allowed to learn that from a thing. So there's just where you stand on the spectrum. And like I said, when I first heard about limitations, I was thinking things like, oh, we'll write a poem about men, but not a poem about women. I wasn't thinking about hacking into a computer. Like I wasn't realizing people were like really going way beyond what I was thinking. So it is a very interesting place to be. There are some very strong open source AIs. About two months ago, some people wrote a paper that said an open source AI would never beat ChatGPT. And two weeks later, someone did. Like they wrote an AI that beat ChatGPT 3.5. I was like, that's fast. That's so fast to have someone disprove your paper. ChatGPT4 is still better than most open source AIs, but not in every category. So there's open source AIs that can beat it in some areas and not others. Right. It definitely has an issue with programming because it's become less effective, which is really unfortunate because that's very useful. Like if you want to write a small tool that's personal to you that oh, I just wanted, like for me, I wrote a coloring book formatter because there's no tool out there that does it. And I just want something that was quick that would turn images into a PDF with multi-pages. Very simple. And it made that for me, which was so, so useful. But what you're discovering is that there are always going to be bad actors. And then the response to the bad actor is usually like, it's the balance between security and freedom, right? So if people go, I want more security. So now there's more people at the airport, right? There's more security at the airport and the searches take longer. Now you have to go to those machines that may or may not give you cancer because no one knows because they're new. And that's people want a higher level of security versus other people are like, I'd rather have a higher level of freedom, right? 
I don't want any security at the airport. Like, let the chips fall where they may. So there are always going to be this balance. And this is, I mean, it really is a very interesting space because I don't know what the final result is going to be. It may be that they just continue to neuter ChatGPT to the point where it's no longer useful. It's very possible that that's going to happen. And in that case, like everyone else, I'll just have to switch to a different tool. Yeah, I think we haven't even gotten to the more serious neutering, which is going to happen with copyright lawsuits. But that's a separate topic. <laughs> yeah. So exactly. So like all the image generator AIs got caught stealing like open source images and stealing from artists. So they're definitely going to get sued and figured out. And yeah, there's a lot of great complaints. Like what if I, let's say you're a copywriter, you work, everything you've written is copyright, right? And that's a different spelling. And the open AI is writing in your style. This is what the Writers Guild is on strike for right now because they're afraid that you write 10 scripts, ChatGPT takes those scripts, distills it, and reverse engineers you, and now it can write scripts that sound as good as yours or better, and you're no longer needed. So it's using you as its source. So that's what people are afraid of. It's the same thing actors are afraid. Oh, you're just going to scan my body once, and then you're going to use AI to make me act in a movie, and it's going to shift the market. So those are things that they're afraid of that people are specifically fighting against right now, which I completely understand. So. Because AIs cannot own anything, right? Like art made by an AI is not owned by anyone. So if I generate an image with AI, you can use it because it doesn't belong to anyone. So we just haven't figured out the laws about ownership. And it's like, because you have to make a substantial change. So if I take that image and then I draw on top of it, at a certain point, then it does become something that's copyrightable. So you're talking about some very cutting edge stuff that just is going to be solved in the courts and going to be solved in corporations figuring out like how vulnerable they want to be to lawsuits and a bunch of lawsuits. This is what happened to Amazon. Every time Amazon gets sued, they change their policy about reviews. So someone will put a bunch of fake reviews. Amazon will get sued for false advertising. They change the review policy. Someone will figure out a different way to do fake reviews. Amazon will get sued. They change the review policy. So it's kind of the way corporations have two ways of doing business. They either like wait till I get caught, then we'll change the rules. Or they're like, I just want to constantly... I want to do it before we get caught. Like Those are the two ways of approaching it. All right, so I think we covered text really well. Now let's talk about the other parts of the internet. You mentioned images. There's also videos. It seems like there is mm -hmm. a bunch of AI tools producing both of those. Which ones have you seen that are useful and how would you use them, let's say again, in the context of marketing? So most of the the video generation tools are not ready. They can either do like a three-second video or it has like that shaky effect that gives me a headache. So I don't think the video. most of the video tools are ready. There's one where you could be walking down a street and you can have it replace you with a robot. That one seems to work. But other than that, most of the video generation tools just aren't ready because what they're actually doing is generating 50 images. Like the way movies were drawn before, right? Like you draw one page, then you draw the next page, then you draw the next page. And they're just not ready to do that consistency. So there's the shakiness. So I don't like where video generation is. Maybe in six months or two years, it'll be really good, but it's not there yet. But image generation, however, is able to do some things that are really amazing and also a little bit worrying. As it, and it, They're able to make photographs. I don't know if you saw one politician posted pictures of another politician and they were AI generated and people couldn't tell. We're already getting there. We're already getting there with voice. Like I can guarantee you that someone has submitted a phone call recording into a court that was not true. It was generated by AI and the person and the, the judge couldn't tell. So I'm sure that's already starting to happen. So there are, again... <laughs> A lot of dangerous places. So there's always going to be that some people are good actors. 90, it's like 90% of people are good actors and 1% of people are really bad actors. And they, they're the ones who ruin it for everyone, right? So, yeah. But if we focus on the practical stuff, let's ignore the fact that there are bad actors in the world. Let's say you're a marketer, you want to generate stuff you can post on Instagram. So you need photos. 
What do you do? Yeah, so that's exactly my favorite use case. I love using MidJourney because it's not too powerful. Like I use Leonardo as well, but it has so many levers and switches that it's easy to not get what you want. It gives you too much control. The beauty of MidJourney is that's really replaced my need for a stock photo site. Because sometimes like you want an image, like if you ever type like happiness, all it is is 50 pictures of people jumping in a field. If you ever ask a stock photo site for a picture of depression, it's always like the same picture of someone leaning against a wall and looking sad and sometimes they're in a jar. So certain images it never has, but sometimes like I want something specific, like, oh, I want a bunch of money in the shape of a DNA helix. Instead of hoping someone's drawn that, I can now get that very quickly. So what I really love is that my ideas can become created. It's really great for generating, like when I have an interest on an image for a Pinterest pin or for an Instagram pin, it can make the image very quickly. I can tell it what colors I want. Um, I really love logo design now. The hardest part of logo design is always fighting with the logo designer who's like, you're like, I want revisions. What do you want? I don't know, but I'll know it when I see it, which is what every designer doesn't want to hear. But now you can just go push one button and say, right. revision, revision. Give me four more. Give me four more. Give me four more. So I really love that because in my business, every time I've ever had to deal with a logo designer, it's always frustrating and always is there. So you can do really cool things that are very practical. The cover of my book, um, Chat GB Profits, the cover of that, the woman on the front, that was designed by Midjourney. And I went through like, 30 or 40 iterations to try and get uh, the pose I wanted, the colors I wanted to... And it would drift. So it would start to get really cyberpunky. And I go, no, that's too... I don't want it to be a robot. I want it to be a woman that feels modern, but has cool colors. So it would pop from the page. So that what I really like is that you can generate a lot of images quickly. And you can finally say, I know it when I'll see it and not and kind of get there. So it could do very, very cool things. It can do whatever shape you want. There's now a, a new tool called Ideogram that actually does text on images. So for people that are like trying to design a t-shirt with text on it, now it's possible. So some of these areas that were really hard, like for me designing a t-shirt, the text, the curvy text is such a hard part of it. So the barrier is kind of dropping in that area as well. So it's very practical for uses like that, whether you're trying to design like the banner at the top of your Facebook page or your Instagram posts, or even if you want to do a video, you can take an image that's like a picture of a cloud, then use a tool like Layapix that will just make the image rotate in a circle and then that's in the background and it catches the eye without having to be complicated and having to use more complicated video generator. So there's some really, really cool stuff happening. I actually think that AI generators are making the whole internet look nicer because I'm so tired of people using like really bad free stock photos that all look terrible or clip art from the 1990s. So I have this hope that everyone starts making better looking images. <laughs> yeah, well, well, the paid stock photos are uh, pretty hokey as well sometimes. I tend to see the same Eastern European people over and over and over because nobody could afford an American actor for the stock photos. So it's all basically uh, Russia and Poland, I guess. <laughs> That's exactly true. I was thinking that, that you can finally get someone who looks Western or Asian or Indian before. you. It was always exactly Eastern European. So that is one of the challenges is that those are the people that are acting for stock photo sites. Because for a person to pose for a stock photo, you stand there in 150 slightly different poses while someone takes your picture, a slightly different pose, slightly different pose. It's very grueling. It's very hard to do that to get every single different pose. And I do think that's areas where things are really interesting. So you can start to get images that are exactly what you want because... When I did a romance novel, and for the cover of a romance novel, you have to have a muscle man with a shirt off. I had to look through... 5,000 muscle man stock photos. I was like, this is killing me. This is not what I want to be doing. Right? But I had to do it. Now, you can kind of describe what you want and get it very quickly. 
which is very cool. One of the barriers for people that want to write children's books is the images. It's very expensive. Artists are expensive. When I turned one of my books into a comic book, I learned, which I didn't know, that there's several people in the process. The first person turns it into like the text on the page and describes each square. And then you go to the artist. I didn't realize those were two different jobs. And I went through a learning process there. And they're both expensive because they're highly skilled, right? If someone's drawn comic books for Marvel or DC or Image, like they, they've, they have this history, then they're going to cost more because they're talented. And it's very challenging. Whereas now, you can create a comic book or create a children's book with your story much faster. And the thing to, to note is that I don't think this is a replacement for graphic designers. I actually think if I design the best image I can and a graphic designer designs the best image they can, both using AI, they're going to get a better result. It will never replace expertise. It will it basically will just raise everyone's level. Like let's say it just makes everyone 10% better. Or it will replace the bottom 90% of the market and the top 10% will still be there, right? But all the others, they were producing stuff that is not as good as AI anyway. I think, yeah. So like what I think about people that were writing like English that wasn't that good, they're writing blog posts. Now I think their actual content will get better. I think that bad graphic designers will be able to get better images because I think 90% of people will never use an AI tool. I think it's 84% of people in America have never used ChatGPT once. And I have to think the number is higher for mid-journey. So as much as we as power users, and based on your questions, I know you use it very seriously and a lot. Most people still don't want to use it. So they just want to hire someone to use the AI for them. So I don't think much of the market will disappear. I think it will shift. But I'm interested to see what will happen. Right. So I, I want to go back to video. You said that you think it's not ready for prime time. I've seen, or at least my marketing manager keeps coming back to me with various tools that generate a very specific type of video, which is one person talking in front of the camera. I think Synthesia has that. There's a few others. Do you think those are useful or do they all kind of fall in the uncanny valley these days? I really think they fall into the uncanny valley. Like, remember that movie? I think it was Christmas Train or something. Something they made three movies using like motion capture and then the company went out of business. They were so weird. Everyone like, I don't want to see this. Stop making this. It's the uncanny valley is a very dangerous place to be. I think it's better to not try and replicate a human. I would rather see a robot or see something that's interesting, right? So as far as where that is, eventually it will work. But I, you know, AI voices still aren't quite there yet. Unless it's copying a specific person, it will be like, hello and welcome to my website. Like they're still doing that. I know Eleven Labs audio is getting better and better, and eventually it will cross over to where it's usable. Here's what I think people are doing right now. Someone gets ChatGPT to write their YouTube script, then they get a graphic thing to make the video, the YouTube video with like a one click button, make a video for an AI script. It's an AI voice. Then someone else is using ChatGPT to using the HeyGen plugin to convert that script into notes. So I think actually we're going through a period where you make a video with AI, then I turn it back into text. So it's kind of a crazy place to be where I don't know what's going to happen. I've always found, because those have always existed, there used to be you could like, buy a software that had a bunch of footage of a person talking and saying like all the different phonemes with their face. I never thought those looked that good. It would be like a person walking around on the website. And I'm like, yeah, that's like 1990s stuff. As far as like facing camera, replacing reporters, maybe. But it, again, it's like, how useful is that, right? Like that's something you and I can easily do. Like how interested would it be if it was just you're an AI and I'm an AI talking to each other? Like it's starting to be, to me, a little bit silly. Like that's what I think Twitter is. I think Twitter is just bots talking to each other. I don't think many humans, some people are, but they don't realize they're talking to a bot. 
And I think that's what I want to move away from. I actually think what's going to happen is that the value of in-person connections is going to go through the roof because it's the only way to be sure someone's not an AI is to shake their hand and to push their hand through them to make sure they're not a hologram. Well, the funny thing is you, you talked about anchors and I talked to a lot of journalists and a lot of anchors and they are all sure this is around the corner. They are really, really scared of being replaced. And I keep telling them, relax, it's the writers that are going first because the uncanny valley is still here. So what I think about is music. So in the 1800s, 120 years ago, if you're a musician, how did you make money? You went from town to town, you'd do live performances and make money. Then with the invention of recordings, people made all their money from CDs and albums for about 100 years. And Napster came out late, like 1999, 1998. And what happened? Music sales went through the floor, right? Like even with all of its efforts, I think that all the streaming services for music are not profitable or break even. They're not really doing big numbers because of the shift of how we think about music. So how do bands make their money? Live performances again. So the market always adapts. So I think that something will happen and I just don't know what it is, right? Like music shifted to live performances. Maybe even writing will shift again. Maybe people start going to plays a lot more and live performances will shift. I'm not sure. But I, what I do know is that people will always adapt and find a new way. And honestly, like writers have been on strike for like, what, four months? And it's like, well, you guys haven't made a good movie in 10 years. Like, If you want people to care, stop making stuff no one likes. So that's the, the situation they're in is they've made so much bad content for so long and they're competing with YouTube and YouTube's still humming along. Like All these late night TV people that thought they were really important, no one's noticed that they're not on TV because no one actually watches those shows. I think Bill Maher just went back with uh, you know Scab Riders, right? Because he <laughs> he noticed that he's not on the air. Yeah, exactly. He's like, wait, no one cares because he, he likes doing a podcast or whatever. Everyone's like shifting to podcasting, which is kind of annoying. But and they're finding out people don't really care a lot. Of, like a lot of media companies are finding out we're way overpaying our actors because no one's watching these shows. No one really cares. Like. You, Mr. Beast can get more views than every single television person at once and YouTube doesn't pay him anything, right? They only right. pay him based on performance, like based on ads. Like they don't pay him anything in advance. He doesn't have a salary. So there's con- the way content is made is really changing. So wh- I think there's a shift to content that gets paid instead of before you make it to after you make it. And that may be the way the market shifts. Like it's a very interesting time. And I think that there's two choices, which is, oh my gosh, I have to... St- like we have to make companies agree not to use AI scripts, it's not going to work. You can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? Like you're never going to get people to buy physical music again. It's never going to switch back to that. Because people are now so used to streaming. And we used to think it wouldn't happen. People were like, no one would ever rent music. We want to buy music. You want to own CDs. You want to own vinyl. That's how I was when I when I was in the 90s growing up in high school. But now it's like everything has changed. So I don't know what the future holds. I do know that it's going to be interesting. But certain jobs are going to disappear and other jobs are going to make an appearance. It's like when they say, oh no, they're replacing everyone at McDonald's with robots. It's like, well, then I want to, I want to be the guy fixing the robots. I want to be the robot wrangler. Like all the, at the McDonald's near me, they put in one of those TVs you can order through the TV. That thing is always broken. They now have more people there because one person's always trying to fix the TV or standing next to it and taking your orders. Then you print out your order, then you bring it to the register and someone copies it by hand. <laughs> so they've added technology that's actually, they have more workers there, not less. So it's, Sometimes there's like the law of unintended consequences. You don't know what's going to happen. And you don't know if people will watch a movie that has AI actors written by AI people. If it's entertaining, we're going to find out. So it could be that there's a shift 
to where like the singularity where they talk about where people don't have to do a lot of jobs and suddenly everyone can just get food made by robots and stuff. So maybe that's the future that's coming. I'm not sure, but we definitely live in interesting times. I think the future you just described is Wally. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I hope not. Um, one note on music. I am far from an expert on music. It seems like based on the guitars in the background, you know a lot more about it than I do. But um, at least according to Jaron Lanier, he did a study on basically musicians and how much money they make and how many musicians there are that could be considered professionals, right? That they make enough money to actually live on what they make. And uh, the picture is quite a bit more grim than what you described. It seemed like the... I wouldn't say Napster, more like the iTunes slash Spotify model of music distribution resulted in a few musicians that make a lot more than the best paying musicians before, but in far fewer musicians being able to make a living off of it. Yeah. So what's happening there is that most music is written by the same person. So there's this team in Sweden called the Hit Factory, and they write all the songs, like they write all the songs for all the biggest artists you can think of. And that's why all the songs are in the same keys with the same chord progressions. That's like one of every 10 songs has the word angel in the title. So what you're kind of experiencing is an amalgamation of music that's, everything sounds the same. There's a lot less experimental. There's also like a lot less experimental movies. Remember there used to be $10 million comedies or mid-range comedies. Those kind of don't exist anymore. So there are market shifts happening and it's hard to know the right answer. I love what you're talking about because it, Definitely seems like there's a lot of consolidation, but usually what happens is consolidation and explosion, then a rejection. If you think about all the music in the 80s sounded the same hair metal and then Nirvana came and changed all the rules and just everything changed. So there is a possibility, which I hope is correct, which will be a fracturing, which is where we'll fracture from one Mr. Beast to thousands of micro-influencers. For example, I couldn't get Jimmy on the phone if I called him, right? So, but if you're a smaller influencer or a smaller person, you can actually talk to and communicate with. Like when people email me, I message them back. Once you get to a certain size, that accessibility disappears. So I think what's interesting and what's going to happen is that people are like, oh, this is my favorite actor. Like my favorite musician is uh, Gina Olivia. Okay. Very small. Her videos have a couple of thousands listens. And I, I have this song of hers that I listen to all the time. So, very much it's shifting towards smaller things and smaller bands. I think there are some things happening, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just an exception, right? So I don't know exactly what's happening to the market, but I think what you're talking about is not an AI thing so much as a every song sounds... It's a distribution model. Yeah, and everything sounds the same thing, which I'm not a big fan of, right? Like every... um, I can't even think of that lady's name who like just did a billion dollar tour, but all of her songs sound like the same song to me. But that's what's happening is that. I think you've described every single pop artist out but it's there. All, and it's all one company. <laughs> one company's been doing it for like 30 years. Like they just found out that there's ghost bands on Spotify, which is like a band that doesn't actually exist. And there was like one guy that was getting like 15 million streams a month because he just made like a bunch of fake bands. So Spotify, as much as they pretend it's not them, what they were doing is like, oh, we don't have to pay royalties if we just pay someone to make a song once. So there's a lot of shenanigans happening in those business models. And I don't know how they're going to shake out. I think that the shift to live music, because where I live, a lot of small local musicians are performing every single night. 
because I live on a tropical island, every single hotel, every single bar has like live bands or live DJs there. So I live in Austin, so we have quite a bit of live music here as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen. My hope, I'll tell you my hope, is that the market fractures and people start to get back into small bands. And most people you talk to listen to bands you've never heard of. Like That would be a really cool future, but I don't know if that's what's going to happen. Like I could, every time my wife starts playing music, I'm like, what did you search for? Did you just search YouTube for bad music or like music to make your husband mad? Because I DJed for 10 years. I've been played guitar for a long time. Like I have, you know, and it's such a wonky thing to say. It's like, I have like a sophisticated palette, but I just listen to a lot of different music to kind of figure out what I like. And I like a lot of subgenres. And then she's just like pop music remix five hours. Like she'll hit a button like that. And it just kills me because I'm afraid my kids are going to get bad taste in music. So I don't know what the future holds. But a lesson I learned from one of my mentors from Austin, actually, and he said that he used to sell candles and he went to his boss and brought like the most fancy candles from New York and said, what do you think of these candles? He goes, I hate them. And he goes, ha, I tricked you. These are from Nordstrom. And he goes, here's a secret. 10% of people have taste. The other 90% are my customers. So that's really what I think is possible. Yeah, my concern with musicians is more if I walk into a bar in Austin and I hear a live band playing and they're great. Typically, if I ask them, okay, what did you do before you came to do this show? The answer is delivery guy for UPS or working at HEB selling groceries, right? Like these people aren't professionals, even though they are really good because they can't make money in that profession. So that's always been the case. If it's more now, which it sounds like you're saying it's more now, right? Like it's Music is a tough industry, right? How many bands have one song and then they disappear? So I don't know what the future holds. Like, I went through a lot of iterations. Like, I was a painter, I was an actor, and now I write books. And people think you can make a living writing books. Not really, right? It's really tough because the royalties for books have gone down. The royalties for audiobooks have gone down. If you have your books on Amazon, you have to pay for ads, which is just another way of lowering your royalties. So, Everywhere you look, corporations are looking for every single way to smash you from every different direction, right? Like, I have a friend who had a song get a million streams on um, Spotify. And I think that the pay for that is like, it's either two or $20,000, like a million streams. Like, a million means nothing now. You need a billion to get to make enough money to have a living. So, it is. There's kind of this filter of large corporations have taken over music. If you've seen like what Microsoft has done, where they have, um, I forget what it's called, like Let's Play or something, where you can have a subscription and all the games are inside the subscription, all that does is it gives them control over studios so that I can get a free game every month. It also means the studio who makes the game has less upside, like they have less opportunity for their game to go viral and sell a million copies again. So it's anytime there's these big corporate consolidations, it's usually bad, at least for either the consumer or for the creator. And you know, the Spotify was originally a good idea. It meant you could have like really Spotify was meant to you create a playlist and you share a playlist and you really have the music you like. But now there's just people that click on like I want like generic playlists. There's like playlist people. It's like an un- law of unintended consequences. So for all of these different things, you just have to figure out what your own path is going to be. And you can either rage against what's happening with AI or what's happening with the market, or you can say, how can I make this work, right? Like, let me put it this way. Let's say I make an AI music song and Post Alone uses AI music to make a song. Whose song is going to be better, right? Like, I can play dad guitar. So it's I always think of AI tools as an accelerant. And I'm hoping, I am hoping that people start to use AI tools to push into new genres rather than to simply do more of the same. 
Because I, but I think we go through those periods. Like in the 1970s, it seems like every movie was either a horror movie where the devil was the bad guy or a Western. And now you don't see that many Westerns or you don't see that many musicals. So we kind of go through shifts and changes in what we like. So now all you see is Marvel comics, right? Oh, that's not gonna, <laughs> that's going to stop. <laughs> that every the last like seven Marvel movies have lost a billion dollars each. Like that's over. So the market has said we're tired of these. We're tired of second generation superheroes, right? Like when all the superheroes, like, oh, here's the new Captain America. No, I just want the old one. Here's the new Thor. Here's the new Iron Man. No, all those like here's uh, Black Panther without Black Panther. Mm. So the market is self correcting. And hopefully it stops being all Marvel movies. Like I have my fingers crossed on that one because I'd like to see other stuff. But you're getting a lot. You're always going to get a shift. Like a lot of movies now are just made so that they are not offensive in China. Right? So they're doing other stuff to access other markets. And what does that mean? The movie's just not as good. So there's two ways of looking at everything. You can look at the bleakness. You can look at the positivity. Obviously, I would love if more musicians can make a full-time living from their music, right? I want that opportunity more and more there. I don't want everyone to be driving Grab. Or I've seen people who they drive Grab and then the person they're bringing is coming to watch them play guitar. Like That's awful. I don't want that for anyone. But I think the important right. lesson to learn is that if you don't take control of your financial destiny, someone else will. So that's why I teach right. about these AI tools. That's why I talk about them. You can either put your head in the sand and kind of go, I hope it doesn't come after my market or go, hey, I want to be the first person who's figured out how to write more scripts with AI. So I'm the person who survives when 10% of the market survives and 90% goes out of business. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to focus on that part of the discussion too, because to use another example that Jaron Lanier uses a lot, like interpreters. Obviously, that's a profession that is going to get decimated because Google Translate is getting pretty good by replacing live interpreters with annotators who have to do it once and then they're not needed anymore, right? But it's better to be the first interpreter that accelerates their work using these tools than the 90% who get replaced by these tools plus annotators somewhere. Exactly. So I think you're 100% right. Like, You've asked me some dumb questions today. We've had some tough conversations. You're exactly right. But it's also like, you can either look at the positive or the negative, right? You can say, maybe the overall market's going to drop down. It means I have to adapt first. I have this belief that in three to five years, every single person working at every single company will have to be proficient AI. The people that learn first are going to save their jobs. The small businesses that go, I don't have time to learn AI, they're going to go out of business, which is unfortunate. But the small businesses that learn how to use AI go, oh, I can post more on social media. I can be more agile. I can use big data to figure out what recipes work the best. I can shrink my menu. Because when we ran a restaurant, it's like, you have to guess how many people are going to order chicken, how many people are going to order eggs, and you have spoilage and all those things. So there are some positives as well. I think that the future could be bright for the people that adapt first. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the first AI to allow me to search for a particular dish instead of searching for restaurants. Like, I want Lomo Saltado today. Where do I get it? <laughs> but I'm still waiting on that one. All right. For people who want to learn more than what we had just discussed, um, where should they go? Where can they find your book or any additional resources? You can find everything at servenomaster.com forward slash AI. If you can't remember that, just Google Serve No Master. Every single search result is me. All right. Awesome. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been a great conversation. I learned a whole bunch. I hope the audience learned as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Other Web. Join us next time for more discussion on news, media, AI, and everything in between.